Um, so we're in Colossians chapter 2, uh, and uh, I, have a, I have a couple guys up here on stage I'd like to introduce you to. So first of all, this is John. Everybody say, hi, John. Yeah. Oh, you guys did such a good job. That was, that was so good. You're making John feel very comfortable right now. I want you to know that. So, uh, so John, I have a few questions for you. The first question is this. Uh, were you raised in an, in an environment that encouraged you to follow Jesus? You were not raised in an environment that encouraged you to follow Jesus. Okay, do you consider yourself to be a Jesus follower? Okay, so I have a question to, to go back. Like, uh, what was the name of the school that you went to? So it was a public high school. Very good. So, uh, so you would say that you were in a, in a number of environments that probably were, were counter to you following Jesus, yeah? Okay, good. Um, are there ways of thinking that existed in the spaces that you grew up in that uh, if you followed those ways of thinking, could lead you away from Jesus. Very good. Okay, good. I'm glad we're all, we can agree with that, right? Like, that all makes a lot of sense. Okay. Everybody, this is Nick. Say, hi, Nick. Hi, Nick. Oh, very good. We all know Nick. Yes, of course. Okay, so, Nick, uh, Nick, were you raised in an environment that encouraged you to follow Jesus? Yes. Uh, so, like, where'd you go to school? Wheaton Academy. So he went to a private school. He went to a private Christian school, Wheaton Academy, right? That's very, that's very good. Uh, his dad, for anybody who doesn't know, his dad's a pastor, so that's good. <laughs> um, so, uh, so do you consider yourself to be a Jesus follower, Nick? Yes. Okay, good. Nick, are there ways of thinking that existed in the spaces you grew up in that, if followed, could lead you away from Jesus? There were. Okay, very good. So uh, everybody give these two guys a round of applause. They did very good. And you guys can go ahead and have a seat. So um, the, reason, the reason I did that is because uh, it's very easy for us when we think about the ways of thinking to exist in the world to look at all the ways of thinking that exist out there and say, yes, of course, those will lead us away from Jesus. And they absolutely will. We need to be on guard against those. But the reality is, even within Christian circles, there exist ways of thinking that we need to be on guard against. There exist things that we need to be aware of. So in our passage today, Paul, he's actually, he's going to challenge ways of thinking. He's going to challenge different philosophies that exist. In fact, he uses that word at the very beginning of the passage. He uses the word philosophy, and he writes to a people at a particular cultural place and time. Uh, people who have ways of thinking that, are, that they're going to have to deal with. And, and what they have to figure out is how are they going to handle those ways of thinking? Are they going to be on guard against them? And so, um, so we'll talk about philosophies that, that need to be challenged. And yes, there are definitely philosophies out there, out in the world, and secular philosophies that, that absolutely need to be challenged. Uh, but the other thing that we're going to see is Paul doesn't stop with what's out there, but he looks at what's in here, what exists in here. And there are also philosophies that need to be challenged in here. And so he, he looks at both. And so, uh, so Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he starts right out, and this is what he says. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. So when he uses this word philosophy, he has a very like, the, the Greek world that is around him talks about philosophy 
all the time. This is something that they're used to. So when he, when he, when he mentions philosophy, he's actually thinking about right now what's out there. And so what we need to do first is we, we need to define what philosophy is. Philosophy, uh, we can think of it like this. Basic assumptions about reality that inform the way a person thinks, feels, and acts. So the basic assumptions about reality that inform how we think, feel, and act. So I want you to imagine for a second. Uh, he talks about how uh, this captivity that, that philosophies can create. So I want you to imagine for a second what this captivity might look like. Uh, imagine that you grew up in a place where you heard that two plus two equals seven. Now that, that, that would be challenging, but, but everyone you talk to knows that obviously two plus two equals seven. Like every communication that you have, it, it's sort of, it's taken as fact that two plus two in fact equals seven. Now the, the reason that's troublesome is that saying two plus two equals seven is not useful for anything. You can't accomplish anything with 2 plus 2 equals 7. Every time you try to sit down and do math, it, it becomes very difficult because you sit down and try to do the figures, and, and it just doesn't work when you try to do 2 plus 2 equals 7. And then someone comes along one day and shows you that 2 plus 2 very clearly equals 4. Uh, and, and then they show you how much easier the math is. In fact, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It, it has the power to free you from the captivity of ineffective mathematics. Like, can you imagine uh, the, the, the world that is now open to you because you know 2 plus 2 equals 4, but then you have a friend who comes up to you and he hears this conversation that you're having and he tells you how ridiculous the thought is that 2 plus 2 equals 4 because obviously 2 plus 2 equals 7. Like, can you imagine what this would be like? This is like a false truth, that, but, but because you hear it all the time, because you live in sort of an echo chamber, because everybody just sort of says two plus two equals seven, you take it for fact, even though it, it has no use to you whatsoever. And then when people actually come and show you the truth and explain very clearly like what the truth is, you can't, you can't take them at face value because you live in the captivity of this mindset that says 2 plus 2 equals 7. These false, false, false philosophies, they have the power to create echo chambers that reinforce false assumptions. This is, this is how philosophies work. This is how things work. And particularly in the secular world, um, in Paul's day, there were secular philosophies out there that, that went unchallenged by the culture, that people just took at face value. Uh, and, and what actually happened is that in some Christian communities, those philosophies took root, and, and people followed them to their fullest extent, and they led to heresy. They led to people saying things about Jesus that absolutely contradicted Scripture. So, uh, so I want to talk to you about one philosophy that was present in the day. It's called dualism, mind-body dualism. This was in, in Greek philosophy. I mean, basically, what it says at its core is the physical world is bad, and, and it needs to be abandoned, and the spiritual world is good, the world of thought and spirituality. And this is why you get like the, the, the most, quote, holy people of the day were the people who sat in their circles on their mountains talking about these philosophical ideas because they were investing their time into the world of thought um, and they were sort of abandoning the physical. 
So what this leads to is actually you get, you get like false gospels telling us things about Jesus that aren't true. Uh, and, and then ultimately you get a theology that comes out of this called docetism, which, uh, which says that Jesus was not a physical being. So that when he came to earth, he didn't actually take on flesh, which is really, really important for Christian theology because Jesus in every way became like us in order to save us, in order to redeem us. If Jesus did not become like us, he could not redeem us. And so, uh, so this, this mind-body dualism, what it leads to is it leads to a group of people uh, believing something about Jesus that isn't true and actually like, has a serious impact on whether or not Jesus is actually to able to atone for sins. So Paul saw the power of secular philosophy in the world, and, uh, and he knew that it had the power to lead people astray, to take them captive and to lead them away from Jesus. And so this is what he wanted to do. He wanted to, to show them for what they are. He wanted to expose them as lies. And so this is why he says, he says, be sure that no one takes you captive. So I got to asking myself a question. What if Paul were writing to us today? Because like, I get the feeling that, that mind-body dualism is not like really like a thought pattern that we're all thinking about and encountering on a regular basis, right? So, uh, so I thought, what if, what if Paul were writing to us today? What sorts of things would he challenge? So, uh, so I'm going to put up um, a, a few different lies for us to, to work with. And uh, these are lies that are really common in the culture. They're, they're at the base of how people in our culture today think and act. And so the, the first one is this. It's the good person lie. So, uh, so the good person lie kind of goes like this. Common phrases that you'll hear is, uh, well, I, I feel like I've done enough good. So, uh, or or you, they'll play the game of comparison well, where they'll go, well, I may not be like the most good person, but at least I'm not as bad as this person. Or so, so like, you'll get the person who kind of never does good things for people, but they say, well, at least I never stole anything. And then you get the person who steals, who says, well, at least I've never murdered anybody. And you get the person who has murdered somebody who says, well, at least I've never like, committed a holocaust or something like that. So, so there's, it's, as long as I'm better than somebody else, then I'm at least a good person, right? So the captivity of this is, um, I don't actually need to pay much attention to what a holy creator might desire of me because I'm a pretty good person. I might, uh, I might not do A, B, or C good thing, but at least I do X, Y, or Z good thing. I might not give my money to the poor, but at least I hold the door for people at supermarkets. Like There are there is sort of these bare minimum standards that we create in our heads, and we say, at least I'm good enough. And the lie that this leads to is this. I'm a better judge of myself than God is. I'm a better judge of myself than, than God is. This is a, a foundational way of thinking that a lot of people in our culture operate by. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one is this, the live your truth lie. This one resonates very, uh, very well with my generation. The live your truth. Everybody kind of has their own way to live, their own path. Everybody's got to go seek their own thing and, 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 and do it on their own as long as, as, long as it makes you happy. You got to do what makes you happy. That's the most important thing. Uh, if you love me, you'll let me be happy. If you really love me, then you'll just let me be happy. You know, that sounds like, that sounds like it works for you 
but it's just not for me. That sounds like it works for you. It's just not, just not for me. Those are the kind of things that, that people who uh, operate by this live your truth lie, these are the kinds of things that they say. And, and at the core of it, the captivity of this is that the, the best thing that could happen is that everyone would just be happy doing their own thing. Everybody would just be happy doing your own thing. Now, the problem is that there's a lie that it leads to. And the lie that it leads to is this. God doesn't have permission to tell me to do something that I don't want to do. God doesn't have permission to tell me to do something I disagree with. That I get to decide what God tells me to do because it's all based upon what I want. So that's, that's the live your truth lie. And then the third lie is this. The third lie is the I deserve better lie. So common phrases are uh, why, why, and it's not just like a questioning why, it's an accusatory why, why did this happen to me? Why did this thing, whatever this thing is, happen to me? Um, I never seem to be able to catch a break. I never seem to be able to catch a break. It's not fair that this person gets ABC and I can't, whatever ABC is, it might be some really good thing. It's not fair though that they get that and I can't even get these little things over here. Right? This is what the I deserve better lie is. Now, I can, I can empathize with the I deserve better lie. I can look at somebody who's maybe had a really hard life, a harder life than I could even conceive of, and I could, I could listen to them say that and see absolutely why they would feel the way that they feel, that they feel they've been gypped on something, that they feel they've missed out on something. I, I can empathize with that, but at the core the core of this way of thinking, there's a lie that it leads to. And the lie that it leads to is this, that I have the understanding and authority to stand in judgment of God. That's what the I deserve better lie ultimately leads to. It leads to this lie that says, I have, I somehow, I have the ability to stand in judgment of God, which is why uh, in the book of Job, when Job is like talking about the situation, he's trying to work out what God uh, did, why God would let this stuff happen, God comes to him and says, who are you, O oh man, to, to stand in judgment of me? Did you create the earth? Did you, did you form the different animals? Did you form these creatures in the sea? Did you have any of this power? Who are you to stand in judgment of me? The lie that that can lead to is that, that we somehow have in us the understanding and authority to stand in judgment of God. So, so each of these secular ways of thinking, because these are sort of core foundational ways of thinking in our world, um, they each have a lie that they lead to, something that is contrary to Christ, that if we followed them, if we followed these lies out to their fullest extent, they would lead us away from Christ. Now, if we're honest, there's some element of these lies. I don't know which one it is, but I could imagine that because we were raised in the culture that we, we were raised in, because we live where we live right now, there's some element of, of one or two of these lies that we might be drawn towards. There's some element of us that, that is like, yeah, I should be able to be happy. I should be able to live my truth, those sorts of things. And so those are, this is why Paul's calling the people of his day to be on guard, to watch out, because, because these secular philosophies, these lies, these core ideas that are ultimately lies, he says they can lead us astray. Then he goes on in verse 8. The question is, what, what does Paul see if he sees them as a problem, what does he see as the core problem with these philosophies? So he goes on in verse 8. He says this. He says, according to human tradition. 
So he starts with human tradition. He says the core problem with these ideas is that they exist within human traditions, repeated things that we do over and over and over again. And these repeated things have the power to to create echo chambers. So whether it's a repeated phrase or something like that, but they convince us from from the, the minute we start coming up in the world, they convince us that the ideas that we're encountering are absolutely true and they're not to be challenged. This human idea, this echo chamber, uh, these are ideas that humans have developed and, and implemented. Uh, and, and the thoughts and assumptions that they create have largely gone unchallenged. And then he goes a step further. So he doesn't stop there, but he goes a step further and says, according to the elemental spirits of the world. So uh, when Paul is talking about elemental spirits, he apparently thinks that there's something in the spiritual realm um, where, where spirits have been given authority at some level over how people in the world think, uh, over some level of, of the philosophies, that, that there, there's something operating in the spiritual realm that, that enables people to think the way that they're thinking. What Paul is talking about is, is about uh, demons who have been given authority over these ways of thinking. Now, you might ask, why is Paul talking about demons when it comes to philosophy? Because that is, like, so strange. Why is he talking about these two things, and why is he bringing them together? Well, uh, if you look at the New Testament, the New Testament understanding about the demonic realm is that, that demons and, and Satan, the, the enemy, as it's described in, in the New Testament, comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And the ultimate way that the enemy steal, steals, kills, and destroys is by leading people away from Christ. If, if the enemy can keep people away from Jesus, then he will have succeeded in stealing, killing, and destroying. And if the most effective way that the enemy can do that is to create these kinds of philosophies that people might follow, that people might go away from Christ, then that's what the enemy is going to do. So this is basically... What Paul is saying, he's saying, don't be, don't be so naive as to think that these kind of ideas originated in human minds. He said, don't be so naive because our enemy is very, very strategic and he knows what ideas that, that he can create that, that people will be inclined to follow. And then, Paul, he finally exposes the foundational failure of these lies. So he says this is what they're according to, like the core problem, their, their human tradition, their, um, their, uh, uh, according to the elemental spirits of the world. But this, this is the ultimate foundational failure of these lies. He says they're not according to Christ. They're not according to Christ. So verse 9 goes on and explains what it looks like that things would be according to Christ because in Christ, the the fullness of deity dwells bodily. That Christ actually is the one who has all authority. He has all control over, over the whole earth. In him, he was the creator of the world. Remember, Paul went through this whole process where he talked about who Jesus is. Fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So there might be authorities out there. There might be even, even the spiritual realm trying to lead people astray, but Christ is the head of all rule and authority. So do what is according 
to him. So I can imagine asking Paul, okay, Paul, I'm going to sit down and have a conversation with him. And I just want to understand, because the guy is incredibly discerning. Like every time he sits down, every time he writes something out, he, he seems to have insight and clarity into so many different things inside the church. So if I want to sit down with Paul and just ask him, okay, man, how, how in the world do I discern truth from error? How, how can I understand how to discern truth from error? I think Paul's really simple answer would be start with Jesus. Start with Jesus. Because here's what we know about Jesus. Jesus died for sins, and then he said he would rise from death. And then you know what happened? He actually did. Like that is insane that he not just said it, and then he said a whole bunch of things about himself, that he was God, that he had the power to forgive sins, all of these things. So when he actually rose from dead, it validated all the things that he said about about himself. So whatever the guy says about himself, I'm going to believe. And whatever he says to follow, I'm going to follow. This is Paul's perspective as he's looking at it. And so when he looks at these ways of thinking, what he's asking is, is this according to Jesus? Like, would Jesus Jesus jive with these ways of thinking? Would he agree with them? Does this work for Jesus? And if it's a way of thinking that's, that's, uh, that's ultimately going to lead somebody away from him, then yes, of course, it's not according to Christ. Because the danger that we have is that we can encounter these ways of thinking, and and some of them have the power to look a whole lot like things that Jesus would want for us. They can look a whole lot like things that, that Jesus would desire for his people, but at the end of the day, they actually lead people away from Jesus. So I want to give you an example of this. Love everybody always is 100% something that Jesus would agree with. No doubt in my mind. Jesus would absolutely say, yes, love everybody always. But you know what we have in our culture today is a warped definition of love. So that what, what it means to love me means that you never actually challenge me. You agree with everything that I do, and you give your stamp of approval to everything that I am. So, when, so when, when you hear love everybody always, what you hear is, yes, love me and never challenge me to turn away from anything that I'm following. And that is not at all what Jesus was saying, right? These are, these are the kinds of things that are inside our culture. And at the beginning, they look good. At the beginning, they look good, but they eventually lead us down a path that would take us away from Christ. So Paul looks at these secular lies these philosophies that exist, and he exposes them for what they are. And then he shifts. He shifts his focus. So he's looking at what's out there, everything that's out there, and then he takes his focus and he brings it to what's going on in here. And this is how he does it. In verse 11, he says, in him also you were circumcised. Now, this is important because in, in churches of the day, what they were going through, what they were dealing with is that there's this party, this group of people that insisted that that what it means to truly follow God. So yes, you can have faith in Jesus and that's good, but, but in order to truly follow God, you have to follow all of the Jewish rules and practices. You have to operate by all of the feasts and celebrate all of those, and you have to follow all of the food laws and do that. And yes, you have to be circumcised men. Like, that's, that's the new rule for what it means to be a Christian. And so, 
yeah, like, yay, Jesus, we're so glad he forgave us for our sins, but we have this little additional piece that we have on. We still have X, Y, or Z thing that we have to do in order to, like, fully make our salvation take effect. Like, your salvation is not good until you have completed whatever this, this series of, of tasks is, and, and the danger of that thought is that something other than the death of Jesus on the cross has the power to pull you from death to life. And that is a thought that needs to be challenged. Paul has no patience for that thought. Like you have to do some sort of work to complete your salvation. And, and Paul has a big problem with that. Because, uh, because when he talks about salvation, he talks about how it's by grace, through faith, not of works, so that no one may boast. Like, these are the kinds of ideas that he has about salvation. So, so when he hears people going into churches and these lies existing in churches that insist that there's some kind of task that you have to complete in order to, to, for your salvation to be effective, he has a very serious problem with that. Now, Paul would look at these ways of thinking as well and say, yes, these traditions, these, they're, they're subject to the same sort of evaluation. They're according to human traditions. It's according to the elemental spirits. These are, these are things that are not according to Christ, but will ultimately lead people away from Christ. So, so then he goes on and he talks about uh, circumcision, and, and he's saying whatever circumcision you think you need has already been accomplished in Christ. Because he says this, he says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, uh, by putting off the body of flesh, that, that, that there's an old life, there's, a, a, there's something old about you that you have been cut off from, and that you are now set apart to a new life simply because of your faith in Christ, simply because of your faith in Christ, that, that there was no action that you did to accomplish it, that God did all the action that there was to accomplish to pull you from death to life. And then he uses an illustration in verse 12, he says, having been buried with him in baptism. So when we have people get baptized, what happens is that they go down into the water. And them going down into the water symbolizes their death to their old self. But then they come up out of the water. And it symbolizes their new life in Christ. So that when they come up, it's as if Jesus has taken them out of death and moved them into the realm of life. So whatever, whatever circumcision you think you need, whatever action you think it is that's going to pull you from death to life, he's like, Christ has already accomplished it. Jesus has already made it happen. So that's, that's the lie that he's dealing with. Um, and, and I think, actually, that lie works itself out in some newer ways today. We're going to talk about those. But, but there are also, uh, I think, a few other kinds of lies that exist in the church that we would be tempted to think. So, so if Paul were writing to the church today, um, I, think he would, I think there are some lies that he would expose. The first one is this. It's good person Christianity, which is a lot like the good person lie that exists in culture. Um, and, and it's still a threat for us in the church. So the, the gist of it is that, that my religious activity somehow makes me good with God. That my religious activity gives me some sort of higher position with God. So this happens when our faith becomes more about what we do than what Jesus has done for us. That's what happens. 
So I'll tell you, uh, I have an illustration of this. I, uh, I was preaching at a church, and it was a, it was a smaller church, and at the end, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm greeting people, and I'm saying, you know, saying hi to everyone, and this lady comes up to me, and she says her name, and, but that's like really short, she, because she can't wait to get to the next part, which is, um, I've been, I've been, I've gone to church every Sunday, for the last 60 years, and Sunday school too. I've gone to Sunday school and church every Sunday for the last 60 years. She couldn't wait to get it off of her lips. And, and it wasn't like, oh, like, let me tell you about this encouraging thing that I do. It was like, I need you to know. Let me show you my spiritual resume. I've gone to church every Sunday for the last 60 years. Like, she really needed to get this out. She really needed to let me know. And the thought went off in my head, so when you stand before Jesus, the first thing that you're going to say to him is, Jesus, I went to church every Sunday for the last 60 years. Like, no, like, I hope not. I hope not. Because w- when we stand before Jesus, what we should be saying is, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and falling before him and just being so grateful for what he has accomplished for us. Because at the end of the day, that is what our faith is about, is about what Jesus has done for us. Uh, so, so the hard part is that, that there are people who are sitting in churches all over the world who, who are operating by this way of thinking, operating by the idea that I can accomplish some sort of task and that will make me good with God. And the problem with that is, is it completely, it, it almost, Paul talks about it in other places as if it makes a mockery of what Jesus has done. As if Jesus, what Jesus has accomplished isn't effective. Uh, the second lie, the second lie that I think, if Paul were writing to the church today, the second lie, and I think in particular American Christianity, um, something that he would challenge is this. I think he challenged something called consumer Christianity. Uh, which is this idea that, that the church needs to meet my preferences uh, or that the church is here for me uh, and that I am not actually here for the church. So, so something you might hear is that, that, you know, my church has to have the right music, the right kind of preaching, the right overall style and programs that sort of fit me. Uh, and the question is rarely asked, what part am I going to play in this place? How am I going to work to advance the kingdom in this place? Because ultimately, as Christians, that's what we exist for on this earth. We exist to advance the kingdom. Like, that's the task that we're given right now, every single one of us. We don't exist to, to get our preferences met. And so, so if, if Paul were going to write to the church today, and I think the church in America, this is one of the things that he would challenge. And the next one is something a little bit like it, which is called celebrity Christianity. Um, if a leader has significant influence, then they don't need accountability. That's the lie. If a leader has significant influence, then they don't need accountability. So the church then becomes more about the ministry of a person than about the ministry of the people. 
The church becomes about the ministry of a person instead of the ministry of the people. Let me tell you all, this church will not become about what I do or what I am. And if it does, I need all of you to call me out on that and call whoever you need to call out on that because that's not what it's about. This church and what this church does is about what we do, not about what I do. And that, that, that's, that's the one thing, this is, this is something that we're tempted to believe, that it's all about what, what the person who, uh, the, the, the pastor does, that the person who has the most authority or the person who's leading, it's about what they do. But no, the, the person who's leading, their job is to equip. It's everybody's job to advance the kingdom. This is the task that we have been given. And so, so we have this tendency, and again, I, I think it's just a result of American culture, but we have a tendency to follow leaders who have influence and to follow them unquestioningly. And, and the two categories, uh, so, so Paul writes about leaders, so he's writing to Timothy, and, and he tells Timothy to keep real close watch on two things, um, two things, no matter what, keep watch on these two things, keep watch on your doctrine, make sure that your doctrine is solid, and keep watch on your life, and make sure that's solid too. So he looks at Timothy, Timothy who, who he plans on being a significant leader in the church, but he doesn't free Timothy from the need for accountability. He says, you still need to keep watching these things. So there are these lies that exist in the church, these things that we might be tempted to follow. And, and at the end of the day, if we followed these out to their fullest extent, they have the potential to lead us away from Jesus. They have the potential to lead us away from Jesus. And you know, there are probably hosts of other ways of thinking that exist in the church today or, or, or even out in the culture today that we haven't considered that stand the chance to do this. Things that have the appearance of Christ but, but actually are functioning off a different motivation or de- actually leading us in a different direction. Things that aren't according to Christ. And so what Paul is telling us at the end of the day, what he wants us to get is that we need to be on guard against these ways of thinking. We need to be careful. We need to see what's uh, behind our motivations. We need to see what assumptions might be grounding our ways of thinking. So then Paul, as, he, uh, as we go back to his conversation with the church in Colossae, in verse 13, he says this. He's talking to these people who the circumcision party is coming to convince them, and this is what he wants to do. He wants to, to remind them of what Jesus has accomplished. He's saying, look at Jesus and what he's accomplished. And so he looks at them and says, you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. You who followed your every whim and every whim of the world that was around you, you were dead. You had no hope of life. And yet, God made you alive together with him. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So he's, he's looking at these, these, uh, this, this uh, group of people who, who says that there's some sort of, of task that you can accomplish to affect your salvation. And this is what he says to them. He says, you think for one minute that you have in yourself the power to affect your salvation He's like, you've missed the point. If you think you have in yourself the power to pull, pull from life or pull from death into life, he says, you missed the point, you're wrong. 
He's saying this law that you prioritize with its, uh, with its meals and, and with its feasts and with the things that you eat and with all of these, uh, these boxes that you check, he's like, that law is more than just those things. If you actually stacked that law up against yourself, what it would show you is it would, it would reflect in a mirror your own brokenness. Your own brokenness, and with that brokenness, there is a debt to pay. And then what he does is this. He says, look, Jesus, he took that debt. He paid for it. He nailed it to the cross and paid for it with his blood. That's how he took care of it. He's like, so don't try to think that your, your salvation is based on anything that you might do, anything that you might accomplish. Jesus paid for it with his blood. So when he's trying to argue against these, ultimately these ideas, these ways of thinking, that, that run against everything that is for Christ, and they, they run according to the elemental spirits of the world. He reminds them, no, you've been cut off from that. That was your former life, and now you are in new life with Jesus. And then he says one of the coolest things that I think is in all of Scripture. Verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So uh, uh, Paul's actually, he's referencing something that, that Caesar does, um, which is when Caesar goes and um, conquers uh, another ruler, what he does is he does something pretty awful. He, he ties up that ruler and all of his generals and, uh, with them and um, actually like marches them uh, through the streets of Rome for all the people in Rome to look down on that, that, that ruler and all of his generals and all of his leaders and watch as Caesar uh, marches them through and basically openly mocks those people as they go through Rome. And so when Paul is talking about disarming people and putting them to shame, what, what he's referencing is the way that Caesar actually marches these people through the streets of Rome so that they can be openly mocked. And he's saying, Jesus when he nailed that record of debt to the cross, that every person who trusts in Jesus, when they have their sins paid for by the blood of Jesus, every time that happens, it is a mockery of those rulers, those authorities, those spirits that try to determine which way culture is going to go. That these, these rulers and authorities that think they have power, Jesus has put them to open shame in every single individual who, whose sins are paid for by the blood of Christ. That it puts, puts these rulers and authorities to open shame. Okay, so what? Um, I have two questions. And they're not questions that, that we can deal with quickly. They're actually questions that are going to require a, a level of introspection, a level of, of thinking. The first question is this. Do you trust God enough to give him permission to challenge your assumptions? Do you trust God enough to give him permission to challenge your assumptions? So I actually don't know what your assumptions are. Um, I have some assumptions of my own. Um, and uh, And the Lord has been graciously taking me through a process where he continually has to challenge those assumptions. But, but the question that we all have to answer and figure out is, is does the Lord have, to have the permission to challenge the, the very base assumptions that we have? Second question is this. 
So we exist. I, I imagine we all live um, and work in places where, where there are people who operate by these sorts of philosophies, these sorts of assumptions that we know are wrong um, and, and, and that we want to challenge them. And so the question might be, how do I challenge these philosophies, these ways of thinking in my areas of influence? Um, and there's not, uh, the, the answer is simple, but it's not easy. Uh, the simple answer is, you show them Jesus. You show them Jesus. You do whatever you can to reveal through your words and actions who the person of Christ is. Because at the, at the end of the day, any of these false assumptions, their base problem, their core problem, is they're not according to Christ. But when somebody sees who Jesus is, when somebody actually understands, when the scales fall off of a person's eyes, they're willing to let whatever assumptions that need to be challenged be challenged. Like Paul, when he, was, when he was there and he finally saw Jesus for who he was, he had all of these assumptions about the law and what the law was for and what the Jewish people were for. And, and, and in an instant, as soon as he saw Jesus, he allowed all of those assumptions to be challenged. And so how do I influence uh, places where these philosophies might exist? Well, as much as you can, through your words, and through your actions. Show them Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I know um, that there are probably a host of, uh, of different things that we would be inclined to believe. Lord, and at the root of them, I also know that, that you desire to challenge them. So, Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us uh, the, these places that might be false, these, these ideas that you want to change so that we, um, we might be faithful to you, so that we might follow you, so that we might follow you and you alone and, and not some idea that we have about you. Lord, would you change us at the very foundational level and would you help us to see, would you give us clarity in our spheres of influence, the places where we're interacting, how we can show who you are with clarity to these places, how we can challenge even the assumptions that exist there, Lord, so that people might actually follow you, believe in you. Lord, would you show us what this looks like? We trust you for it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.